a message that I began last week. I, I actually was not planning on a series when I preached last week. And it's turned into a series called Dream Killer. You'll see the slide here over to my left. There are certain things in our life that go after our dreams, that kill our dreams. Last week we learned that the number one thing that will kill your dream is unmet expectations. Today we're going to talk about this idea that God is in control. First, I'd like to direct your attention up here if I could. <laughs> now What's that mom said? Yes, let me turn the table so that everybody can see. These are Twinkies. You all know what a Twinkie is, right? That Somebody's phone? Is that somebody's phone? Oh, no, no. That, that's not a phone. I hear voices. Uh, Twinkies have been around a long time, since the early 1900s, actually. They went back, and there's folklore that Twinkies will last... <laughs> Not only five years or 10 years or 25 years, oh but goodness. until Jesus comes back. <laughs> the idea being that uh, there is nothing natural, nothing redeeming, nothing food positive in a Twinkie. It's, it's, it's pure chemicals. And so the idea is that uh, that will last forever. There actually is a shelf life to Twinkies and that happens to be about 25 days. So though there might not be much healthy in a Twinkie, um, it does have a shelf life. Now these are golden baked little loaves. You've seen these, right? With, hmm, uh, these are moist. <laughs> with three little holes in the bottom which is how they inject the sort of cake filling well, it's, a, it's a cake type of filling <laughs> these are oh <laughs> I haven't had a Twinkie in years <laughs> this is so good but there's something unique about them. They even deep fry Twinkies now. Have you heard of that? You can go to places in New York and California and you can buy deep... Oh, I shouldn't leave that sitting there. <laughs> That's uneven. <laughs> you ever do that at home? Like the pie, you know, it's uneven so you cut... <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. It's, it, you can't leave it uneven and put the top back on. Those are good. That's really good. So nothing redeeming, nothing healthy. 
snack food, I mean, it'll, it'll probably go down and just sit there in your, in your stomach and bloat you. Hmm. This is really good. Hmm. Yeah. In fact, I can't imagine that the Lord had anything to do with creating Twinkies. <laughs> because the scripture says that he came to give life and to give it more abundantly. It's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Yeah. Mmm, those are so good. Now, I do all of that. They say um, in preaching classes that the first five minutes is the most important part of the sermon. If you can capture people's attention in the first five minutes, you have them for the rest of the message. But if you don't, you're going to lose them. So, wow. That's really good. Now, even though this is complete chemicals with no food value at all. I feel like a chipmunk. I have it on the side of me. <laughs> and probably not very good for you, even in the quantity that I have eaten it this morning. So, at the close of service, we're going to have prayer for Pastor Jeff. If God is in control, why did he let me eat something so unhealthy for myself? I mean, God came to give life. God doesn't want me eating unhealthy things. Why didn't he stop me? Valid question. You might think, oh, that's a little absurd. God's not going to keep you from eating a Twinkie. Well, now, wait a minute. If God is sovereign, we're going to look at that this morning, talk about that. If not a single thing happens without his permission and without his involvement and his control, why would he let me do something so unhealthy for my body. Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's the amplified version of that. 
Through him, we also have access by faith into this remarkable state of grace. You and I live in a state of grace. And it's my choice to be in that or not to participate. In fact, I access it by my faith. God doesn't force it upon me. Here's the same amplified translation, contemporary or amplified certified. Through him also we have our access or our entrance, our introduction by faith into this grace, this state of God's favor. You are in a continual state of God's favor. You can live there. But you access it by faith. In other words, you have a part to play. Now, we could be overbalanced in grace and just talk about grace and God's favor and how he has provided everything and make it all about grace. We could do the same thing and error on the same side of things and just talk about our responsibility to believe, to be in faith. It's actually a balance between those two. And the scripture says we have access to this favor. We have access to this state of blessing through our faith. John chapter 10 verse 10 the thief comes only to steal to kill and to destroy I came that they might have life and have it abundantly the purpose Jesus came was to give life amen and he talks about the quality of that life because there's a difference between just existing and existing in joy and happiness and having a good life, a healthy life, an abundant life, being able to do things, go places, enjoy life, not constantly be sick, have children, build a family. Jesus is all about that because he wants you to experience life to its fullness. Now, how do we access that? Through our faith. Here's the deal. God's provided it, but I have to access it. Are you tracking with me this morning? Maybe we could say it this way. God makes your dream possible, but you make your dream available. Yeah. Here's another way of saying it. Grace is what God did before you and I ever existed. He created it. (laughs) But faith allows me to come into that favor, that state of his blessing and his grace. Faith is my response to what God has already made available. Faith accesses the content of God's unlimited resources. So, where then does this idea of God being in control come into or come from? We call it, there's a word for it, sovereignty. That's the theological term. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. 
This subject, the sovereignty of God, happens to be one of the most divisive theological subjects in the body of Christ. If misunderstood, it can be one of the most damnable. That might be a little bit strong, but I'm, I'm looking for a word. I mean, it can literally lead you into such a life of negative, uh, constantly being beat down and guilt-ridden and feeling like the Lord's after you to judge you. The sovereignty of God can literally turn Christianity into something that you would not want to be a part of, and it's turned many people away from considering Christianity because of the way this subject is talked about by a great many of our brothers and sisters in evangelicalism, the sovereignty of God. Now, how many of you have ever accessed Wikipedia through your computer? Yeah? great online sort of dictionary that's been built by the people, by the public. Anybody from the public can contribute to this great massive knowledge base. Now, its accuracy depends on how well it's checked and verified and those facts and figures that are put out there by just about anybody can contribute to be sure that they're correct. But it is a growing, growing access of facts that tend to be generally quite accurate. Now, there is a, there is a biblical uh, companion, if you will. There's a, there's, a, there's a spiritual or biblical version of Wikipedia, and it's called Theopedia. So it's a dictionary or database regarding biblical things. Now, I went to Theopedia to look up a definition on the sovereignty of God. Ready? The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control and that nothing happens without his direction or permission. The sovereignty of God is not merely that God has the power and the right to govern all things, but that he does so always and without exception. Now, Webster's Dictionary defines sovereignty as supreme excellence. How many of you know God is excellent? He is supreme. Now, see, I, I can agree with that definition of sovereignty. How about this one? Supreme power, especially over culture and body politic in the world. Well, I can agree with that. Um, I can agree that God actually does have supreme power over everything. He is a supreme being. He could do anything he wants to do. He is God after all. Third one, royal position or authority. How many of you know that is God? He is royal. He is in a position like none other, king of kings and lord of lords. But it's this evangelical concept of the sovereignty of God this supposed biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule, all things are under God's control, and that nothing happens without his direction 
or direct permission that I wholeheartedly reject and disagree with. Now, God is God, Job chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things, that, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. How many of you know that's true? But I was listening to a message by Bill Johnson on this subject. Bill's the pastor of Bethel Church out in Redding, California. Listen to this, and I quote, Any definition of God's sovereignty that allows evil to exist as part of God's will and purpose is an immoral definition of sovereignty. Boy, I like that. I like that a lot. In fact, for our streaming audience, I need to put that up. Again, Bill Johnson, any definition of God's sovereignty that allows evil to exist as a part of his will and purpose is an immoral definition of sovereignty. Let me put this another way. Here's our big idea for this morning. God's sovereignty is his will to partner with us in demonstrating his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there's a definition of sovereignty that I can get behind, that I like. See, we are partnering with God to make a difference on this planet, in the earth, and it's our faith that gives us access to this wonderful favor and state of grace that God has made available to us. According to the Bible, God has actually limited his sovereignty. He's limited his sovereign rule by his word and by his will. God can never do anything that violates his word and God will never do anything that violates your will. He'll never make you do something. Even though he's sovereign and he could, that would never be the basis of relationship, would it? To force you to serve him. So in the beginning, we find in the book of Genesis that God deemed man ruler of the earth. God gave us a choice in Deuteronomy 30 in verse 19. He said, I set before you this day life and blessing blessing and curse excuse me life and death blessing and cursing choose life we find in Joshua chapter 1a that 8 that God gave us the authority to rule over our circumstances telling us this word shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night being careful to observe all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous then you will have good success how will you make your way prosperous how do you have good success in this life? By faith accessing the grace of God. And he, Joshua takes that a little bit further and says, we need to take the word of God and meditate on it daily. Keep it in our mouth and speak it. So, is God absolutely in control? Does every circumstance emanate from the Father? Is he the author of even bad and good? No, absolutely not. That is contrary to God's will, contrary to his sovereign expression. 
You know, if God's absolutely in control, if he wills everything, even the bad and the good, what do we do with a personality like Hitler or Saddam or ISIS? Did God author Hitler? Did God direct Hitler? Did God bring Hitler to the earth? Why would God raise something up that he empowers you and me to pray against? Somebody's in our wall wanting in. We need to pray for deliverance, don't we? That's funny. For you that are guests this morning and aren't aware, that's Ace Hardware. There's nothing that separates us and Ace Hardware but a very thin wall. If you stand next to the wall, you can hear people in Ace Hardware talking. So it's kind of interesting. And they, they, they definitely hear us, especially during worship. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> See, God has developed an earthly system as part of his kingdom expression where he wills to partner with us on this earth so that we can bring the expression of his rule into the earth through how we live, how we believe, how we access this state of favor and grace. I love that. We exercise dominion over our circumstances through the invitation of prayer and declaration. Now consider something. If God, in all of your circumstances, was to just show up and be in control, as some evangelical Christians teach, I believe that what C.S. Lewis said would be true at that point. C.S. Lewis said, when the author steps onto the stage, the play is over. Think about it. If the author steps onto the stage, the play, it's over. <laughs> Nothing's gonna go on, play stops. And yet, there's this abominable doctrine of sovereignty where God's in control of everything. He authors it, he sends it, he approves everything, he gives permission to everything. And nothing could be further from the partnership that Jesus began when he came to this planet and instituted the church. It's gone so far that some even take God's sovereignty so far that they say this, God creates the crisis so that he can then provide a solution and we will give him the glory as a result. I don't know whether to call that schizophrenic or egomaniac, but it just isn't God, I'm telling you. Second Peter chapter three and verse nine. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we've often heard the prayer of Jesus misquoted when he was on the cross 
or in the garden, excuse me, during his suffering prior to going to the cross and he was praying. And he said, Father, if it be your will, if it be your will, you can, right? You can change this, you can deliver me out of this hour, you, you can, okay? If it be your will. We've taken that and we've applied that to our own life and prayers and we approach God with a, Lord, if it be your will. And so when there's crisis, when there's circumstances that are completely contrary to life and liberty and abundance and grace, we chalk it up to, well, must have been God's will. God, you know, is in control. And wrong. Look at this. God's not willing that any should perish, but how many of you know some are going to perish? Well, what happened to God's will? If it's God's will that none would perish, why are some going to perish? Why have some perished? You see, here's the deal, guys. There's this big idea that we need to get our arms around this morning. God's sovereignty is his will to partner with us in demonstrating his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Did you know that even Jesus went to a town one time during his evangelistic travel? And the Bible says in John's Gospel, chapter 5, that he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. Well, now I thought God was sovereign. I thought God was in control. I thought God always, in every situation, controlled that, initiated that, and the outcome was always his will. No. Now, here's a big lie, and it results in blaming God for a lot of things. Some people teach that Satan cannot move, he cannot influence, he cannot attack unless God specifically gives him permission. Now wait a minute. Do you remember during the temptation of Jesus when the devil came to Jesus during his 40-day fast and Jesus was out in the wilderness and the devil was tempting him? Do you remember that one of the temptations that Satan brought to Jesus was, if you will bow down before me, I will give you, and he showed Jesus in a, in a vision, an open vision, all the kingdoms of the world, their power, the prestige, the rule, the control. And he tempted Jesus with that and said, if you will bow before me, I will give you all of this. Question, where did Satan get it? See, Adam abdicated the original place and state and favor that God created for him to have in the garden. We're the ones who opened the door for Satan to come back into the earth. Now consider this. James chapter 4, verse 7. We are told to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, question. Why would you resist something if God initiates it and sent it? 
enjoy it. Stay in it a while. Get the full benefit of that sickness. <laughs> I mean, if you're going through mental health problems, stick around a while, dear. Enjoy that. Maximize what God's trying to do in your life through that. See, I'm using a bit of absurdity to sort of prod you this morning to think through this idea that God is in control and that he even grants permission to the devil. I know where we get this, and you do too. We get that from the story of Job in the Old Testament where the devil went before the Lord and, 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 and was accusing the Lord of having a protective fence, a protective bubble, a, a supernatural protection and, and bubble around Job and said he would not be serving you the Lord said to Satan sort of taunting him see my servant Job how righteous he is how he's so faithful and serves me with a pure heart and the devil said back to God yeah but he only does that because you've blessed him and you have a protection around him move your hand take your hand back and let's see what Job does Right. So it is from that Old Testament story that we get our modern day evangelical doctrine, a large, in a large piece of it anyway, about this idea that the devil has to get permission. Well, there's not time this morning to exegete the story of Job and go through that and, and, and tell you from the Hebrew languages what that really meant and so forth. But suffice to say this, Jesus came and he destroyed the works of the devil the Bible says and disarmed him Colossians chapter 1 Ephesians chapter 1 and 3 John 2 1 John excuse me 1 John chapter I believe it's 3 verse 8 disarmed the devil destroyed him rendered him inoperative so it, I, I actually don't care about what I'm reading in the book of Job in the Old Covenant prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus if it contradicts, if it no longer applies to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what Jesus accomplished for us, bringing us into this state of God's favor and grace that I now can access by faith. You do not take Old Testament passages of Scripture and teach New Covenant doctrine when they are opposed to the revelation of Jesus, Peter, and Paul on a subject. And boy, is that one ever opposed. How many of you have recently had to deal with your insurance company over some hail damage to your roofs? <laughs> I know ours got palmated and uh, so many other roofs and, are, and around back in June, the massive hailstorm that hit our, our state and did severe damage. You know there's clauses in your insurance, whether it be your car or your life or your whatever, acts of God that the insurance company won't be responsible for. They say, we are not responsible. We will not insure acts of God. And it's always something where God is destructive. I mean, it's something where God comes and he just does something supernaturally and being totally in control. You know, I mean, if God wipes out, you know, something and destroys something and we consider that an act of God, we're not going to insure it. Why does God get the blame for that stuff? When Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, it's the thief that comes to 
and destroy. See, what we need to understand here this morning is God really has two types of will, his absolute will, and then the will that we read about here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. What am I talking about? All right, for an example, the Bible says that it is the will of God that Jesus is going to return to the planet Earth and establish his kingdom. He is going to bodily return and come back a second time. Now see, you don't get to vote in that. God is going to do that. Jesus is going to return, and it really doesn't matter what you or I think about that. Now, that is an absolute will of God. But then we have this will of God. He's not willing that any should perish, but we know that there's individuals that are perishing. Why? Because we have access to this state of grace and favor through our faith. And if you, do, if you choose not to use your faith, if you choose to remain in unbelief like the city Jesus came to in John chapter 5 where he could there do no mighty miracle because of their unbelief, then you remain outside of that grace and favor. It's not that God's mad at you. I mean, it's immediately accessible. I just want you to know it's a partnership. How many of you understand that? It's a partnership with God that we are in accessing this grace in this state of fight. Why do storms come? Why do storms come? And I'm not talking just about hail storms. I'm talking about the storms of life. Why do storms come in the first place? Well, how about we stick with the scripture John chapter 10 verse 10 the thief cometh not but to steal to kill and to destroy I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly could we stop blaming God for the storm I want to get him off the hook this morning could we stop blaming God for the storm and start realizing that there is a thief out there who destroys, who kills. I mean, at least we could change the language on the insurance contract to acts of Satan. <laughs> I know that's not going to go over well. It just doesn't sound good, does it? Acts of Satan. Woo! But somehow it's okay to attribute that to God. Mm. And whole groups of Christians. Because somebody says it. Or they read it in a book. I love what Bill Johnson says regarding storms of life. He says, when people present these kind of circumstances to me, and boy, has Bethel been in the midst of a storm there in Redding. You know, it was Redding, California, that experienced one of the biggest, most damaging, destructive fires in all of California's history over the last six weeks. So Bill Johnson and, and Bethel, Bethel Church has been right in the middle of a, of a storm of the worst of circumstances, homes being lost, lives being lost. And so people will come and say, well, what about this? What about this death? What about that car wreck? What about that individual who was a Christian who died from cancer? And Bill says, I always answer it this way. 
Who did Jesus leave in charge? Secondly, there are some things that are a mystery and you and I are not going to know on this planet why. Now, that doesn't take away from the goodness of God. That doesn't take away from the statement that Jesus came to give life and to give us life more abundantly. That doesn't, see, I, I don't have to rectify. I do not have to justify John 10.10 10 with the circumstances where a loving, committed Christian dies of cancer that was prayed for. I don't need to try to justify that. And so I agree with Bill wholeheartedly here that there are times in life where the mystery of our faith doesn't make sense but I am going to keep praying for people's healing I'm going to keep laying hands and casting out that sickness or that demonic presence I'm going to continue to speak the word of God to my circumstances Let's use a very personal example that this congregation has experienced just in the past six months with one of our own, Manuelito Garcia, right? I can't go through all the circumstances, but those of you that attend church here regularly know that we almost lost Manuel. He came that close to dying. Many of you were up there in the room praying holding his hand, standing next to him when it looked like life was leaving him and he was plugged into all kinds of medical assistance to keep him breathing and alive. But we prayed. We fasted. We commanded. We spoke the word of God. We went, we held his hand, and we touched. Manuel, stand up so everybody can see who I'm speaking about. And today he's back in his ministry, and he's healthy, and he's strong, and back at work, and everything's, thank you, Manuel. God delivered him. And we thank God for that. And we say, thank you for John 10.10. 10. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to partner with you to bring heaven on earth through our words, through our faith, we accessed this grace. But I happen to have three different friends who I have lost over the last, is it five, six years, in Lois and Deborah, my own brother, Mike Corson. Many of you knew Mike. I lost my own brother to a disease. The second round, after successfully we brought him through one disease and he got completely delivered, was completely 100% free of the disease, live, donor marrow, set free, living goal, went back to school, back to college, and then another one hit. The second one took his life. I don't understand the mystery of that. But I'm okay with it. Because I will never, I don't need to take that mystery 
and try to excuse it or explain it with a doctrine like the sovereignty of God and say, well, you know, God's in control. It must have been God's will to take Mike early. He's going to turn him into an angel. Oh, please. No, I don't understand why I lost my brother Mike. And I, I don't understand why I lost him the second time, but we were successful the first time. But you know what? Every time there's been an opportunity to pray for somebody who's sick since my brother died, I continue to pray the prayer of faith. I continue to believe God heals. All right? I continue to believe that Jesus wants me to live life abundantly here on this earth. And so I'm going to pray it, and I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to give to it, and I'm going to invest in it. Why? Because God has called us into a partnership where we access that state of favor and grace through our faith. And the rest of it, I have to leave up to the mystery of God. Now, you know, this isn't something I'm just kind of making up and, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I'm not strong enough to go there to that sovereignty doctrine and no, not at all. In fact, I would direct your attention to Acts chapter 12 where this very thing took place and the Bible does not try to explain it. This is Acts chapter 12. And cameraman, you're going to want to get just maybe my right side here and these words. I know it's a little tight for our live stream audience, but see if you can follow along with us. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. All right, what had he done? He arrested Christians, and now he's getting ready to persecute them. The first one, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but... That's a, one of the biggest buts in the Bible. But the church was earnestly praying for him. Both wound up in prison, both being persecuted for their faith. James dies, or is killed, murdered. Peter, as you keep reading now, in verses 6, 7, and 8 up through 10, you'll find out Peter is delivered. Angels come while he's in prison, undo his chains, and he walks out of the prison and is delivered supernaturally. Question, why was James put in prison and killed, but Peter was delivered? Well, to a certain degree, it remains a mystery. But look at this. The church was earnestly praying 
to God for him. It doesn't say that the church was earnestly praying for James. Could it be that the prayers of the church made that kind of difference? Could it be, as we mentioned earlier, that our prayers are an invitation in this great partnership that we have with the Father to enter into the realm of this earth where the authority over the earth was abdicated by Adam to Satan and much of the stuff that goes on in the earth today has nothing to do with God willing it. It has to do with the thief's activity and man reaping what he sows, frankly. A lot of judgment is self-activated. I just offer that as a, as a possibility that for Peter, boy, the church grabbed a hold of it. Just like we did manual for you, we grabbed a hold of God and you were delivered. How many of you know who Walt Disney is? He's not alive today. But when we think about this big idea of God's sovereignty, that God's sovereignty is his will to partner with us in demonstrating his kingdom on earth as in heaven. I wonder maybe if that's a little bit of something that Walt Disney understood. Do you know that Walt Disney went bankrupt seven times before his first successful animated movie? Now, you know, you might go bankrupt once, twice, and about the third time, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, you know, maybe this just isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of here. I think I'm going to go work at 7-Eleven or you know, sell cars or I don't know, but I, I'm not meant to make movies. Seven times Walt Disney goes bankrupt and then he has his first successful movie, which was either Snow White or Bambi. I forget which. Snow White. Now, I'm, I'm not recommending that you go through bankruptcy as a plan of action to success. <laughs> but the reason that I'm mentioning Walt Disney this morning is that there's an important value that was contained in Walt's life. Failure does not change your dream. Failure does not change God's dream for you. Failure is meant as a distraction to get you to stop using your faith in God's promises. Don't let failure be a dream killer. Continue to believe God for great breakthrough. Declare his promises in your circumstances. And let's not allow this theology of God is in control of everything to stop this beautiful partnership that we have with the Holy Spirit.